This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Hohokam, and Yucateco Maya people, and we wish to pay our respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Konnichi, what's up, cousins? Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your Sir Auntie, Charmaine Fury, a.k.a. The Blasian Blurred, and this is episode 224. My guest today is John Blake, senior writer at CNN.com and the author of the recent memoir, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. I was introduced to John through Teresa Stovall, a.k.a. Auntie Teresa from the Mix Auntie Confidential. She had interviewed and written an article about his memoir and made a connection between the two of us. At the time that John and I had recorded, this was one of those interviews that I did prior to going early to my mental health hiatus. Uh, So it was meant for last season, but we're dropping it in this season. Um, At the time that we spoke... Besides Teresa, he hadn't been speaking to mixed people about this book quite yet, and he was curious about what the mixed community would feel about his book, given that he had a predominantly black identity. John grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, in one of the most historically black, and he would describe as aggressively black neighborhoods in the country. Uh, This would be the neighborhood that was featured in the TV show The Wire, Uh, This is also the neighborhood that Freddie Gray was murdered by the police in. And so his lens of whiteness or maybe even biracialness uh, was skewed towards the fact that white people were not safe for people who grew up where he grew up. Also not being raised around his white mother, uh, he did not have a mixed identity. He just didn't. I won't spoil it in this intro, but there is a very significant reason why he was not raised around his mother, and he does not discover that reason until he's 17 years old. And so he spends a big part of his early adulthood coming to terms with, uh, I guess, acknowledging himself as a biracial person, as well as dealing with uh, several issues from his childhood, including time spent in foster care, neglect, family mental health, racism, etc. Uh, so it was a really good discussion, and I look forward to hearing from y'all about what you feel about the discussion or if you get a chance to read the book. I'm going to put links in the show notes to where you can pick up the book and also uh, how you can connect with John if you're interested. He does say that he, he responds to people who reach out to him, so keep that in mind. Uh, before we get into today's episode, though, I do just want to announce that the 2023 Be Your Mixed Ass Self fundraiser t-shirt is officially available on militantlymixed.com on the merch tab. Uh, My goal this year for 2023 is to raise $2,000 and this money will go towards uh, finishing up the Be Your Mixed Ass Self anthology as well as paying down the militantly mixed debt that I have incurred over the last three years. (sighs) Because, yeah, it's getting bleak out there. So the goal is $2,000. I 
absolutely know that we will not sell enough shirts to hit the $2,000 goal. Um, one, because historical evidence shows me that we will never sell that many shirts, but also because of the nature of print-on-demand is that we don't actually earn that much through the t-shirt purchases. So if you would like to also help us hit that goal, there are other ways of doing that. And one of those is the tip jar, paypal.me slash mix. You can drop some coins in that tip jar and all of those proceeds will go back into the show and go towards the, uh, the fundraiser. So yeah, let's hit that. Let's hit that goal this year. Um, if we do hit it, it'll be the first time we do, and I'll be very ecstatic about it. And it'll also really, really help in the next chapter of Militantly Mixed if we get there. Okay. Um, one other thing I want to mention is I brought it up last week that on October fifth I was doing an Instagram live from my the Blasian Blurred account with Rhea Mayakor, a.k.a. Mixed Race Mama, uh, where we were talking about queer and mixed relationships. It was a really good discussion, so I hope you check it out. Um, the replay is available both on my The Blasian Blurred Instagram page as well as Mixed Race Mama Instagram page. Uh, I did notice some militantly mixed listeners in, in the... Um, join while we were watching live i also have seen some comments and gotten some dms uh from listeners who watched it uh so i'm interested in hearing what y'all feel also you know some of us are mixed and queer like myself and so you know any opportunity to be able to share and elevate the stories of mixed folks mixed and queer folks etc um i'm gonna be there so check that out it is on my Instagram page, the Blasian Blurred, or Rhea Maya Kors page, Mixed Race Mama. Okay, should I mention it one more time? I'll mention it one more time. In November, Rhea and myself are going to be releasing a new podcast. It is called Matcha and Masala Blended Besties Spill the Tea. We are a couple of mixed mates musing over matcha, masala, and murder. As fellow British heritage folks who are obsessed with tea from all over the world and true crime podcasts, we decided to jump into the true crime podcast game late stage, but we come at it from a different perspective as mixed people, as both people born in the US and the UK. Uh, we will be looking at different cases, uh, you know, through our lens and sharing, you know, background and context behind these cases that might not uh, have been exposed in previous true crime podcasts. So check it out. Uh, we won't exclusively talk about true crime. It's just one of the major things that are bringing us to the table. It's something we both wanted to do for ages, and we finally found the partner that we can do it with. So in November, please keep an eye out for Matcha and Masala Blended Besties spill the tea. It's going to be a lot of fun. And on that note, without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, John Blake.
this week I am joined by writer, recent memoir author, John Blake. John, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody and we'll get into it. Yeah, my name is John Blake. Uh, I'm the author of a new memoir called More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. And I'm also a senior writer and producer at CNN.com, the online news site for CNN. And I am the son of a white Irish class, working class woman and a black father. And I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. So the way that I got introduced to you is through Teresa Stovall, who hosts a monthly episode of, of the show with me, The Mix Auntie Confidential. And so when we started to chat a little bit, we talked a little bit about how your experience of growing up predominantly, it, it's fair to say you grew up with a black identity. You just oh, happened definitely. to have a, a white mother, but yeah, it was, it was definitely black identity. Yeah. And, um, and so you were curious about how your book might read to audience of mixed people or people in interracial relationships and stuff like that. While you've been going through your signings and your, and your press tours and things like that, have you engaged at all with other mixed people specifically about your story yet? I have, and it's been really it's uh, it's been really curious because I'm meeting a lot of um, mothers of biracial mm. children who are curious about what happened to me. And I think they want to help their kids grow up with a real healthy sense of self-esteem. Mm -hmm. I think secondly, I've met people who are biracial who did not grow up in the type of era that I did, who are very curious about what it was like for me to grow up in a world where there was no Obama, there was no Kamala Harris, there were no biracial role models. So I have met a couple of biracial people and, and people in interracial relationships. It's always fascinating to me, and I've been doing this show now for, for five years, to meet people who, who didn't grow up, like even though they're mixed, didn't grow up necessarily mixed. I, I was telling yeah. you offline, I have two biracial parents, interracial grandparents, all my aunts and uncles, all my cousins. Uh, and we, a lot of us lived together at a time. So really the only monoracial people I grew up around was a couple of my grandparents and they, but what was, they were also unusual, I guess, because they, my grandmothers came from other countries. And so, so there was always something, we were always different, I guess, than the people that were around us. I don't like using that term for us, but, and in your case, you had a very black experience. Do you re remember when you kind of realized, I know that you didn't grow up with your mother, which we're going to get into the reasons why in a little bit, but do you remember when you kind of realized that your mother was a different race from you? Uh, probably when the first person in my neighborhood called me a honky and wanted to fight me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so the, the, the neighborhood I grew up in in Baltimore is a notorious neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just black, it's aggressively black. So <laughs> it's the setting for the HBO series, The Wire. Mm -hmm. It was also the setting for this 2015 racial protest slash uprising, mm -hmm. whatever term you want to use, when this black man named Freddie Gray okay. died in police custody. Mm -hmm. So it's this place that's known for going inner city, all black, full of violence and poverty. But it was also filled with this hostility toward white people. Nobody liked white people in my neighborhood, and you hardly ever saw them. Mm -hmm. So in the era when I grew up, um, I grew up. I grew up as what I call a closeted biracial person. It mm -hmm. was a mark of shame to have a white mom. I didn't want anyone to know I had a white mom. Mm -hmm. I didn't sign her race as white on my school forms. I marked her as black. Mm -hmm. And so, and I was born in the mid '60s when interracial marriage was illegal in much of the country. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the environment I grew up in. And I was very aware very early on about having a white mom and a black father. And secondly, I was aware because I had no idea who my mom was. Mm-hmm. She disappeared from my life not long after I was born. And I knew that, um, you know, that the, part of the reason she disappeared was because my father was black and her family hated black people. Mm-hmm. So I knew there was this whole white side of my identity that wanted nothing to do with me because my father was black. So from the earliest, I was very aware of my mixed race identity. Okay. So I feel like we grew up in fairly similar types of neighborhoods, mm-hmm. uh, except for mine's West Coast and yours East Coast. I grew up in North Long Beach on the border of Compton. And my period of, of coming of age is, I guess, the, the gangster rap era. That's mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the the era that I I came up in, and so I see a lot of parallels when I when I you know watch the short story of like the wire and things like that. I would see a lot of parallels with our neighborhoods, except that we would see other brown people, not yeah. you know like not necessarily just black people. We we would occasionally see other black uh, other brown people, and the only time we saw white people, they were cops. Yep, and so yeah. you know that that power hierarchy between between us and our neighborhoods made it make sense why we were uncomfortable or outwardly hostile to seeing white people in our neighborhood because when we saw them that meant someone we knew was going to die going to get beat up going to go to jail some something like that and in my case although I do uh, I didn't tell you but I'm I'm black and white British on my dad's side and I'm Japanese um, and Appalachian white I guess on my mom's side uh, but I didn't know the white people in my family except for my British grandmother so I was always nervous about people finding out that I wasn't just black and Japanese because at least what was different for me from the other biracial or mixed kids uh, was that they all had white moms and I didn't yeah. <laughs> and so I was always I was always trying to make sure people knew I didn't have a white mother but my nana did live with us sometimes and so it would be like who's that white lady and i was like oh that british lady like i would make sure people knew she was like a different different kind of white but in but in your case you tell a story you're you know what i'll be honest i'm not sure if i if i realized if this was a dream story or a real story that you were telling you're kidnapped at your five-year-old birth story by two white people yeah, you want me to recount that story? Yeah, can you tell that story because it, the yeah. book kind of opens with this this thing that that you a memory that you have, and um, to me, this is this is a trigger point that makes me think, oh, no wonder you're scared. You were scared of, or uncomfortable about white people growing up. But yeah, can you tell so, a little bit about that story. Yeah, so so part of the reason I was so hostile to white people, one, I knew my family, white family rejected me, but also. Mm-hmm. We, the only people we saw were like white police officers who would mm-hmm. brutalize people. But uh, this story you refer to is one of the first memories I had as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so again, I was I was in this all black world, inner city, Baltimore. And yet I knew I had this white family and this white mother somewhere that didn't want anything to do with me. And mm-hmm. I didn't even know what my mom looked like. There was no picture of her around yeah. the house. I didn't know the sound of her voice. But one of the first memories I had as a kid was that one day two white people came and just took me somewhere. They took me to a park and they took me to fly a kite. And I remember how they looked at me with such love and warmth. And I remember flying this kite and the memory is so strong. I remember taking a kite back home after they dropped me back off. Mm -hmm. And I kept that kite for, for a long time until it just disintegrated. But I, I vividly remember them 
taking me to this part, coming into my neighborhood and just whisking me away. And nobody knew. And I struggled with like, was that, did that really happen or not? Mm. But so I started off the story because I, the book with that, because I, I wanted to convey how early on I was very aware there was this mm-hmm. whole missing side of myself. And even as a kid, I wanted to be reunited with my mom and, and this family, though I knew on some level that they hated me because my father was black. Yeah. Did you f- ever figure out who these white people may have been? Was your th- grandfather living at the time that that would have happened? Yeah, I think what happened, and I, I, I can give the answer, it kind of telegraphs some of the other parts of my story, which I don't mind. Mm. But I think what happened is that Part of my story is that what I discovered later is that my mom didn't just voluntarily disappear from my life after Mm -hmm. she was born. Something happened to her, something tragic, and she was taken away. Mm -hmm. And what I believe that was, was that she was saying goodbye to me. Mm. And she was saying goodbye to me, and the other person might have been her father. That's what I think, but I don't know for certain. Okay. Yeah, I I was imagining it as the, as your story progresses, um, which fun fact for the audience this is one of the few times I've actually finished a book before I, I got the person on the show. I had oh, enough time. <laughs> Usually I get like a chapter or two in and before I get an opportunity to interview a, a person. But in your case, I got to finish your book. Um, yeah. or to be fair, there's a little bit left of your epilogue, but I, mm-hmm. I have enough of the epilogue yeah. to know what ultimately happened. Um, but when I was going through the rest of your book, I, I was a, I was always imagining because of another thing that you end up telling and your story later about your grandfather is a ma- as wondering if this was one of these strange moments of because I feel like I have some of this in my family, too, which is sort of like a, a, a guilt benefit moment where it's like I'm tr- I feel a little bit of racial guiltiness, but I'm trying to give you I'm trying to show you that I'm not or you know, like some some kind of weird thing that is internal to the person that that does whatever the treat for you. Um, but imagining that it could have also been really scary because, again, they were strangers to you as far as your memory served. Yeah. And just weird that you could in your particular neighborhood, white people couldn't just roll up unless they knew who these white people were. Right. So, um yeah, I wasn't. I guess that's why. I, I because of that, I got a little confused. I was wondering, like, was this something that actually happened, or if this, or if this is something that um, is akin to what you tell later in the story, which has to do with your grandfather. Um, and before we get into like the later parts of your story, though, one of the things that you mention and generally is is sort of being called, I guess, being called honky or being outed as mm-hmm. potentially being like, did people know or did they just suspect? I think they suspect because among black people, there's this tremendous racial variation. Mm-hmm. And I've read somewhere that up to 75% of black people are racially mixed. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're finding that through like 23andMe because of the legacy of slavery and Jim, Slows, and Jim Crow. So there were light-skinned black people like myself there. Mm-hmm. But it was became obvious to people, or not obvious, but they suspected it when they would see me around my father, mm-hmm. who was extremely dark. Mm-hmm. And they saw this extremely light kid with this big curly afro. Mm-hmm. And then they began to see. But in my neighborhood, you didn't even have to have a white mom if you were just light-skinned. If you reminded someone of the oppressor of the- in any way, you would call it honking. You had to fight all the time. 
So I was very aware of that. Yeah, that was something that that born 10 years after Loving versus Virginia. And technically, my parents would have been illegal themselves because mm -hmm. they they were both born of interracial relationships. But the difference with my family, besides being born in California, which didn't necessarily have or part, one of them was born in California, didn't necessarily have um, the restriction, the, the anti-miscegenation stuff, but uh, they were military. So they mm -hmm. had an extra pass, like a lot of the military families that were interracial had that pass because our bo our boys went abroad and, you know, the least we can do is let them bring home a yellow bride or in my other side of the family case, a white bride. Um, and and so we, while technically around the rest part of the country, they would have been considered illegal. Um, they, they had passes as long as they stayed inside the military community. It was when mm -hmm. they got outside of the military community that things would get a little bit dodgy for them. Um, but it, so, so people kind of expected when you saw light skins and you saw military families, they just kind of expected there was something else going on or that you weren't like a, a regular white in quotation fingers. You were some yeah. kind of different thing, yeah. uh, which is exactly the case in my, in my family. Uh, but in, in your neighborhood, I can imagine, and especially at the time too, I can imagine that, that yes, you're, it's still too fresh. It's still, I mean, it's a hundred years technically, but it's still fresh enough because the behaviors haven't changed and crow is still happening. You know, all that kind of stuff hasn't happened. Uh, and the fact probably that you had a father that people saw and not a mother that people saw that made people think, well, if he's light skinned, that's probably what's going on. Did you yeah. have to, did you feel like you had to really defend yourself, defend your blackness growing up? Uh, no, I, 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 I felt that on a more basic level, I felt like I had to defend my physical safety. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't that I wasn't it, for, for as a kid. Oh, it wasn't that fellas. It wasn't that philosophical for me. Am I defending my blackness? I just wanted to uh, remain safe and defend my right. younger brother. So on that level, uh, that's what I existed at that level. And on a second level, um, I absorbed the same hostility toward white people that all my other friends had. Mm -hmm. I didn't like white people. Right, I had this yeah. tremendous hostility. So in a way, I could understand why people reacted to me the way I did, because I felt the same thing that they did, mm -hmm. which is weird, because even though I felt that I knew I had a white mom, but I felt that I didn't. It was just a mark of shame. And I yeah. understood why people felt so much hostility toward white people. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And even as a, a lighter skinned black Asian um, who nobody really can tell what I am except for Black folks can at least tell usually that I'm mixed. Um, I always had that kind of a hostility too. Like I and I would tell people that, you know, I would tell lighter skinned people who would get upset when they were called in because by the time I, I would say maybe that's a generation thing too, because even just 10 years later, there was a little bit more of forced integration. And so people started to get used to each other a little bit more, I think. So by the time I'm coming up in the the eighties and early nineties. Um, you were just kind of, you had this sort of like, you have to deal with each other type of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I would tell other light skinned people that are, because I, I know a lot of mixed people to a group in military families, uh, where we would all kind of feel the same thing. It's just like, it's not our fault that we remind them of the past, but we remind them of the past. Like you can't help, but When, yeah, when you kind of resemble the oppressor, you can't help that people are going to 
put that on you, whether you even have any knowledge of it too, because I mean, at our ages, when we were coming up, how much knowledge did we have about the oppressive systems? You know, we, yeah. we just knew that white people were scary, I think yeah. in a lot of yeah. cases for, yeah. for us. Um, but that's interesting. You said you were just, you weren't defending your blackness. You were defending your physical safety. And what's interesting to me about that is the fact that by the time my generation of mixed people come up, so I'm a multi-generational mixed person, but even the mixed people that are around my age, 45, they were trying to prove they were black enough. And you didn't necessarily have to prove you're black enough. You were just trying to make sure you got through. Yeah, I, I would later meet mixed people at Howard University that mm. I, I became very, very aware of who were very into proving their blackness. It was almost like they were overcompensating. Yeah, these are people who had uh, who were biracial, who often grew up in all white settings, mm. and by the time they got to college, uh, they were they were Stokely Carmichael, they were Nelson Mandela, and and all mm -hmm. the freedom fighters roll into one. And I could see that dynamic, and I understood mm. that. Uh, but yeah, in my in my world. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't grow up in that all white integrated setting. Right? Yeah. It was just all black and all this tremendous anger, which would make it really more difficult for me to really try to reconcile with my white family when that moment right. came. The reconciliation with your family is also difficult in in two because one, you just found out it was just like a yeah hey you want to come meet your mom to or you yeah. didn't even know you that's what you were doing right you were just gonna go meet a friend of your dad's or something right. Well, yeah, no. So here I was 17 years old. So here's the situation. I grew up uh, knowing that this whole other white side of myself had no interest in me. Mm -hmm. And I thought my mom was probably dead or just didn't want anything to do with me. So I had become accustomed to living without knowing who she was and caring. Mm -hmm. I spent mm -hmm. most of my time in foster homes in West Baltimore. So dealing with that and the kind of violence and the poverty, that took a front seat to what I was thinking about most of the time. By the time I was 17, I was on my way to Howard University, historically black college. So I'm like, that part of myself, I'll never have to deal with. And my father just came to me one day and said, do you want to meet your mom? It was a bombshell, I was totally unprepared for it. Yeah. And three days later, I, along with my younger brother, we're being driven to this really menacing looking red brick building mm -hmm. in the countryside of Maryland. It looks like the set for the Shawshank Redemption. We're escorted into this waiting room. And as we're waiting, we could hear people moan in pain in the background. Mm -hmm. And we're like, where is this way? What's going on? And then we see this hospital orderly who escorts this thin young white woman out into the room. And she's wearing these like Goodwill donated clothes, baggy and old. And she looks at us and her eyes light up with joy. And she says, oh boy, John, oh boy, Pat, it's so good to see you. And she runs and hugs me. And I hug her. I don't even quite know what to say because I'd never even used the word mom before. Yeah. And that was my mom. Yeah. And that was the first place I met her. And what was partly also shocking about that is where I met her, we were in the waiting room of a mental institution. Nobody told me that she had schizophrenia, the mm -hmm. severe form of mental illness. We didn't make that discovery until that very day. So that's how I met my mom. Yeah. And that's where I met my mom. But one of the things that was so striking about that, besides the obvious shock value, right. is that when I saw her, I thought to myself, wow, she's been living in this awful place all this time. And I had never seen a white person suffer like that. I thought mm. that only black people could relate to that type of suffering. 
Mm-hmm. So when I met her and I saw her, it was the first time I felt empathy toward a white person. Mm. Yeah, that I mean, I can't imagine how jarring that whole situation would have been, because I mean, at least if you had had some information. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know that you could have prepared yourself either way. Like not a not many of us have experienced going into a mental institution yeah. for a visit or anything like that. So even if you had known, I don't know that you could have prepared yourself for service, prepared yourself, but like how jarring that must have been all the details, all the data you've never had hitting you all in one moment. Um, I remember being really kind of goosebumpily about that section of your book of thinking, because I personally have some issue. Both of my parents weren't the best of people. And so I have, I have some issues related to them and I don't love moments that make me feel empathy towards them. If I'm honest, you know, you, you, like, you don't, you don't like those moments. I don't love those moments because it, um, because of the responsibility that I think it was part of the journey that I think you describe a little bit in your book too. Like at some point you just want people to take responsibility, even if, even if there's things in their past that gave them insufficient tools to prepare them to be our parents and then they're our parents and now we have insufficient tools. Like I understand that there's a thing, Um, but at some point there's a level of responsibility that I think you just hope people take. And um, when you can see it in yourself, like I make a mistake, I take responsibility, things like that or whatever. And you kind of hope that for them and they don't do it, that when there are moments of maybe humanizing or, or whatever, something that gives you empathy. It, it just, it, it's, it just is uncomfortable. It's just itchy to have okay. to sit in that, in those moments, you know? Um, yeah. And so when I was reading sections, cause there's multiple sections within your book that you're kind of angry, then a moment of empathy comes and you got to deal with that moment of, of, of empathy and you're itchy. And then, you know, you're going through your life and then it happens again. And, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of, you've had tears of sort of chipping away. It seems mm-hmm. like of mm-hmm. the different, um, anger or um i mean you just had a lack of knowledge like you had a lack of information too so you could you could only deal with what you were given and you weren't really given a lot of information to even process the different situations that your family was in so when you have a moment like that one you don't know this person you haven't known them your whole life two you weren't prepared necessarily for meeting them in the moment that you met them and then with the meeting of them comes all this other information that you have to process and you're 17 years old how <laughs> you know like how are you expected to to go through a moment like that do, um do you f- recall sort of like what that coming to terms with feeling like why am I feeling empathy in this moment do you recall what that felt like after or did you just try to block it because you're a 17 year old and you got you about to move on with your life a little bit no I couldn't block it and I remember it very well because at the moment I met my mom I became in effect her caretaker mm. um, so when you have a person who has a severe mental illness and you're and they're your one of your parents I have to stay in contact with her I have to visit her I have to make sure she's all right. So I couldn't kind of distance myself from my mom. But what I felt more than anything was just uh, overwhelming sympathy for her. Mm-hmm. I, it, 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 I, any kind of uh, impulse for feeling sorry for myself or being mad at my family for the shock of the meeting mm-hmm. kind of went away because I began to think more about what she was going through. Mm-hmm. And, and and as I began to learn more about her, I began to feel even more sympathy for her because I realized that part of the reason 
she had such a tough life is because she she defied her family and her community to be with my father and to have two black sons. I mean, she mm -hmm. really risked a lot. So I begin to see it, the kind of courage that she took and, and the price she paid. You see, back in the mid-60s, sometimes what would happen if a young white woman had black children, and my mom was uh, Roman Catholic, they would send these women to mental institution because right. something was wrong with them. Yeah. So uh, racism could have been a factor and the reason she was there. So I, I just felt more than anything, I, f I felt sympathy. I mean, of course, I felt confusion and I felt, you know, anger. Mm. Like, why do I have to, why didn't anyone tell me? Yeah. But now I realize they didn't tell me because they didn't know how. how People could, yeah. didn't really talk about mental illness openly in the mid, you know, in the early 80s when I met my mom. So I that's mean, what I remember. Barely language to talk about it even five years ago like we're we're being yeah. in how we learn to talk about mental health right yeah. now so there is a portion of the story and we'll get more into sort of your identity here after that but i just one more question that i have is uh, there's a portion of the story that makes it seems that there's a generational issue of potentially with your grandmother mm -hmm. having possibly possibly i mean maybe not diagnosed but possibly a similar issue to what your mother had Oh, there's no doubt she did. My mm -hmm. my mother's mother was institutionalized herself. So there's a genetic link between mental illness. So um, she was institutionalized when she was very young. And I mm -hmm. recall like learning these stories later about how my mom used to visit her mom into mm -hmm. mental institution and how her mom wouldn't even recognize her. But my mm. mother would still try to reach out to her and be friendly. Mm. And here I am. I'm kind of replaying the same scenario now with my mom. Yeah. Now I'm a young, I'm visiting her, trying to reach out to her and trying to connect to her. So it replayed itself. Was there concerns, again, because we didn't really have the language to talk about mental illness in, in this respect when you're coming up. Was there concern at all about if it happened to your grandmother and it happened to your mother that it could be passed along with you and your brother? Yeah, I was concerned about that. I think... Uh, most I, I, well, I can't speak, but I suspect most people who've had a parent with a severe mental illness have they've wondered, well, the same thing happened to me, and I definitely wondered that when I was a young man. I'm like, wow, well, I suddenly wake up one day, and I can't think, and I I can't be coherent, and I, I dreaded that, but it, it it never happened. And what what I've read about schizophrenia it usually manifests itself by young adulthood. Mm -hmm. And so the older I got, the less those fears realized. But the bigger thing about the mental illness was because I had never seen a white person like that. Like we hear mm -hmm. this term, white fragility. And in and, and the world I grew up in, white people weren't fragile. That, they were the cruel police officer. They were yeah, the people yeah. who were well, who had everything. Mm -hmm. And I just, I never expected to see a white person like that, much less it being my mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a portion in the book where you refer to your mother as like one of the most un unlucky yes. people. Yeah, um, she is. Yeah. I mean, you think about it in some ways, people born with mental illness, in some ways, it's I, I think they could understand racial prejudice because racial prejudice, you're judged for how you were born, for qualities you have no control over. Mm -hmm. People born with these mental illnesses, they have no control over it, but people look down on them with contempt. And, and make all these assumptions about them. They're less than anything. And f f things they have no control over whatsoever. So I think, in a way, my mom really identified with Black people because mm -hmm. she knew she had this illness. She would talk about it with me. But you also have heard from your Aunt Mary, too, that your mother always shown signs of being really 
welcoming of people, of yeah. all people, basically, even before the obvious triggers of her mental illness kicked That's in. That's a good point, Charmaine, because uh, that's something I've wondered about. There's this belief out there that people are born racist. I've heard people say mm -hmm. that racism is embedded in our DNA, that people are born that way. But from what I've seen and what I've read about social science, that is definitely not true. The whole concept of race for itself, for example, is a very recent invention. Mm -hmm. You know, racism is something that's created. It's, it's something that people learn. So I think there are, there are a lot of white people who are born naturally who, I mean, of course you absorb racism in a country like this, but I think there are people who are naturally temperamentally, they're welcoming of different people. I've, I've met, I've done stories as a journalist on white people who grew up in these incredibly racist circumstances, their families, their environment, but for whatever reason, when they were kids, they never bought into it. They mm -hmm. questioned it. And my mom was one of those people. She was just like that when, as a kid, she just welcomed people. And, and my people in my father's family told me when she would come to date my father, here's this white woman walking into this all black just inner city. Boldly going. <laughs> yeah, she, she wasn't looking over her shoulder. She just seemed comfortable. And mm -hmm. it was just in her from the very beginning. Yeah, that that was that's also a very nice section. I mean, while it still has some some sadness to it, too, but like the relationship she had with your grandmother your and your yeah. your dad's sister and things like that, too, seemed but, or even your dad's other children, I guess the older children remember right. her uh, or yes. remembered her to a degree as well. So uh, we will, we, I don't know if we actually even named the book. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we just jumped right in and started talking about it. <laughs> sure oh, I think it's called, yeah, it's, uh, I should know the title because I wrote it right. <laughs> um, <laughs> more than I imagined, colon, what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew. So if you were to summarize really what the more than you imagined bit was, I mean, you have a whole memoir for it, but if you could summarize a little bit, what, what do you feel was the m more that you could imagine? Oh, there were so many layers that I, of the story that I, that was, you know, that there were just so much more than I imagined. First of all, my mom, I mean, I, I didn't expect that my mom, who I first saw as just a victim mm -hmm. of racism, <laughs> of mental illness that I would discover that what a powerful, inspiring figure she really was. I didn't imagine that. Two, I didn't imagine that the white members of her family who believe that white black people should live apart, who called me a zebra child, mm -hmm. who freely used the N-word, that I would become like this genuine, clo genuinely close, that we would become a family. Mm -hmm. I never expected that, number two. And number three, I never expected that one of the most important lessons that I will learn about racism and hope would come not through my job, where I meet all these brilliant people who talk mm -hmm. about race, that it would come through my mom. So mm. those are some of the things that I didn't expect. Mm. And one of, again, so one of the things that we brought up before we even got to talking about you coming on the show was the, the identity bit that you hadn't mm -hmm. really shared. Uh, mm -hmm. or you're curious about sharing this with mixed people. So uh, the question that I have to ask is, I, I don't even really know if, if there is an answer for it for you, though, is are you a Black man that became mixed, or are you a mixed person that is Black that is kind of also mixed? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say this, how, this is how, this is what my biracial identity means to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of joke with people. I tell people I'm racially fluid. Okay. Meaning, depending on the circumstance. So I know, for example, if I'm stopped, <laughs> what is that? What does it say? Too tired to code switch. I like that. <laughs> yeah. 
I tell people if I'm stopped by a white state trooper two o'clock in the morning on the highway, I'm black. <laughs> to right, him, yeah. No matter what I claim, you know, as mm -hmm. I go into the world, I'm black. So I understand that. But when I'm around certain settings, like, like I'm saying, I'm talking to you, I do tell people my mom is white because my father told me you cannot deny your mom. Mm -hmm. If you just say you're black, you're denying your mom. And he really made me think about that. But ultimately, the way I define myself is not through my race, it's through my faith. And mm -hmm. that's part of what I talk about in the story. I consider myself a Christian. And I know that's a loaded term. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have had awful experiences with organized religion. And I'm sympathetic to that. Mm -hmm. But that's how I define myself, primarily through my faith, mm -hmm. um, not my racial identity. And I guess the final thing I would say is that what my racial identity means, I, I don't know. I, I'll tell you that later because I don't want to like get on, go off into a sermonette. <laughs> but that's how I see my racial identity. Okay. Um, so in circles in which, like there's different periods of your life that you you kind of describe. I mean, besides growing up in one of the the historically blackest communities um, ever, and, and I guess you can argue maintaining sort of segregation even well beyond technically when segregation was supposed to be ended, and then going to historically black college, you eventually partner with a fellow person of mixed ethnicity. Has has your had had that relationship explained a little bit of mixedness to you for having not really grown up with a mixed identity? Like, did you did between your your coupledom because you're both coming from I mean, it's one of the things you even point out about them when you when you have their first date. It, it's just like, oh, there is this thing that we can kind of relate on. Is there an aspect of that relationship that talked to you to your mixedness a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's a good observation. Um, yes, what it taught me, and I got to be more specific, my wife, when I met her, I thought she was so different from me because she came from a different culture and a different mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. She grew up in Central America and Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And she grew up in the middle of this brutal civil war. Mm -hmm. So she saw a lot of violence. And um, she's the child of a white Hispanic father and a kind of a black Bahamian mom. Mm -hmm. So she grew up in her world. She was mixed. She didn't fit in. She was teased mm -hmm. by kids. And so though she grew up so different from me, I immediately felt this kinship. And what mm -hmm. it taught me to try to answer your question is that these experiences I had as a mixed race person growing up in the United States are very universal, that there are a lot of mixed race people throughout the world in places mm -hmm. like Central America, get to mm -hmm. Europe and Asia, who grow up in cultures where they tell you, did you either this or your that, but they grew up in between. So mm -hmm. it, it made the world bigger and it made me feel less alone when I met her. That is exactly the thing that is kind of the motivator for me to do something like Militantly Mixed too. It's just that uh, despite the fact that I grew up around a lot of mixed people, including mixed people in my own family, knowing that there's some random person in another country somewhere else that kind of also had a similar situation, even though our environments were different, our cultures mm -hmm. were different and everything. At the end of the day, a lot of us say a lot of the same things. And mm -hmm. I've talked to people all around the world. It's people viewed me as different. I mm -hmm. believed myself to be different. And, and then kind of reimagining what that meant really for yourself is like, not necessarily that I was the different one, but that everybody was different from me. But at the same time, there's somebody in this other little place somewhere else in the world that actually is experiencing something similar to me, I think is the, is part of the motivation in me doing something like this and getting a chance to talk to other mixed people. And I, I, I love knowing those moments of when you can blur the line 
of, of race, of culture, of ethnicity, of identity, of all kinds of things, when you just find something common. And even if it's not spoken, like you said, it was just a feeling you felt like despite being from different places, there was something um, really similar between you, between you two, that it's nice to know that you can blur that line, like in the, in the idea of like, hopefully people aren't born racist, but just literally learn it over time, like that you oh, can yeah. connect with someone across a border. Yeah, yeah. You know. So I, I would imagine this podcast is somewhat therapeutic for you. Oh, it was in the beginning. I mean, now yeah. it's it's <laughs> it's kind of weird because you cross when you have so many conversations with mixed people. I've, I've spoken now to well over 200 people for this show alone, but not, that's not counting the speaking engagements and the people out on the street and things like that that I've, I've talked to. In the beginning, it was it was solving a lot of pain. It was very healing in the beginning. Um, now it's more of like, how do I now? be the helper. I mean, I think I always was throughout the show, but I, but now it's less that I have less healing to do now. A lot of, a lot of healing has happened and now I need to turn that and spread that to other people and, and getting uh, opportunities to speak to people from all over. And really it always boils down to if I just saw someone that looked like me, if there was mm -hmm. someone on TV, you know, representation matters. If, if I just knew I wasn't the only one. And I think that would have solved a lot of the identity issues that some of us have, you know, especially when we're, coming of age, that period mm. of time is really mm. like a, you feel so alone. And yeah. literally every single person your age is experiencing the exact same thing. We yeah. all feel so alone and we're trying so hard to connect and, and feel normal, but you already are like, you're literally already being normal. The kid right next to you is feeling the exact same way as you, but there's this extra layer of benefit when someone's either mixed the same way as you or has a similar experience. Um, I think one of the things that I recall from your book too, now that I'm thinking about this is when your aunt Mary, who you resisted relationship with on and off for a very long time, like you, you, you held a small status with her for a long period of time. But when she finally had the opportunity to share with you her foster care childhood experiences, that seemed to open up a big um, thing for you too, because you realize, again, I guess that goes in back into, you never really realized that white people could suffer. And, and you guys had this very similar yeah, experience. I'm glad you bring up Aunt Mary because that's one of the key relationships in my book. I not only didn't know that white people could suffer, but I didn't think that white people could change. So right. the biggest struggle about identity in my book is not really between being black, you know, having a black father and a white mom. I felt that the biggest struggle I experienced was my experience as a journalist covering race mm -hmm. in my experiences as a biracial man. Let me mm -hmm. explain that, what I mean by that. So as I began to meet my mom and other members of her family, like her sister, Aunt mm -hmm. Mary, I also became a journalist covering race through newspapers and then later CNN. So almost any big racial upheaval in the last 25 years, I've covered it. I've right. written about it. Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing, Rodney King riot uprising, whatever you want to mm -hmm. call it, Ferguson, Charlottesville. And I developed a cynicism. This, mm -hmm. You know, I like white America will never change. They can't change. They won't deal with racism. But yet what I experienced in my personal life with my Aunt Mary, with the white relatives, relatives in my family, mm -hmm. show me that even the most hardened racist can change. And the things that change them are not the things that I thought as a journalist would change people. Meaning in journalism, we think if we expose people to facts, give them a story, show them mm -hmm. this video, hey, read this book about anti-racism, that will change you. But what I discovered 
is that facts don't change people, relationships do. Mm -hmm. And Aunt Mary was the one who showed me that more than anybody, because this woman denied, I mean, this woman had a serious problem with racism and she changed in ways that I never expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a section in the story about your developing relationship with Aunt Mary where um, I guess she's trying to outreach, yeah. but you're not, you're not ready for it. And that's a right. fair, that's a fair thing given what you were going through. Um, so she's writing you and you're either skimming or not reading. And so right. later, later on in your life, you do, you're, you're connecting because you're trying to answer a different question that has to do with your grandfather and you reach out to Aunt Mary to get this information. And she's, She's probably confused telling because like, didn't I already tell? You know, she probably thought she had shared some of this stuff with you when she's writing. And then late later on, you go back and you read through everything. And she's she's done the thing that I think you and I were both talking about earlier is like she acknowledged certain things. Yes. She has made active moves to kind of change. She she was noticing things that that even if she would be resistant, because I think most people naturally are, I'm not racist. I just did a racist thing. You know, mm -hmm. like, I think maybe that was probably a lot what was going on or something. Um, and she kind of started to answer a lot of the questions. So your your relationship shifts really dramatically from, would you have called it adversarial in the beginning or would you just have called it? Oh, yeah, I, 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 I intensely disliked her. I didn't want to meet her when she first mm. met me. And, and that dislike was deepened after I met her because I asked her, like, she reached out to me when I was in my mid-20s. And I'm like, why didn't you reach out to me when I was a kid, when I could have yeah. really needed your help? Was it because I'm black? And she said, no, it wasn't because you were black. It's because you aren't Catholic. I was raised that, you know, we don't associate with non-Catholics, mm -hmm. which made me even angry. It was classic denial about racism. Mm -hmm. So to go from that to this woman who writes all these letters acknowledging her racism to a woman who right now sends me you know, books on anti-racism, wants a copy of White <laughs> Fragility, uh, somebody who, I mean, that, that kind of change. Yeah. These are the things that I don't really see in my job covering race because it right. seems like things don't change. And it's taught me a lot about what really shifts racial attitudes. So yeah, um, Aunt Mary and I are really close now and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Did that change how you now write about race? Yes, yes. Because there's this perception about race out there that that people are either racist or they're not. Mm -hmm. And I understand now there, there's this in-between that people are so complex that the same white person that can do something that's extremely racist, but that's not all they are. You don't have to define them by their worst act that they can be better. They can be different than that. They can change. I've seen that, you know, in my family. And so it's made me more empathetic toward white people, but that's a dangerous thing because I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to tell a story that implies we just become friends with white people, right, right. racism will disappear. It's not that type of story. My Aunt Mary did a lot of hard work to get where she was. We had a lot of difficult conversations and meetings. Um, but it's, it's changed the way I, I see racial change in this country. I feel like, particularly after George Floyd, I think a lot of people started to believe that if we just show white America just one more video, that yeah, that will yeah. change them. If we had one more protest, one more policy, but I've seen so many racial reckonings come and go. And I'm convinced that one of the, that we also have to create these situations mm -hmm. where people have to have interracial relationships and be part of interracial communities. That that's also part of racial change. That has to be part of it. It's not yeah. enough. 
yeah totally. that is kind of a theme in some of the of some of the people that you've met throughout your life where everyone that did yeah. sort of maybe not a whole 180 but let's say a yeah. pretty dramatic shift each one of them told you something that implied because i experienced being around more people from a different group from yeah. me i was able to start to see the the humanizing thing and so i, I that that is one thing and and i'll you know i'll be honest there's times when i'm going through your book that i'm like oh i hope this isn't going to be one of those you know oh we're all going to unite kind of a thing um and then a, you know then a story would be like because of this they started to change bit by bit and we're not doing sweeping changes where we're over many many years it seems that that this that this change is happening so i think the lesson ends up kind of being more of just like it's not yeah, George Floyd, post-George Floyd, I had tripled in downloads. I had tripled in the audience size. And I was like, oh, wow, they're they're listening. They're paying attention. And, and then, you know, a few months goes by and it starts to go back to what sort of my normal my normal catch is. And I think the lessons of this ends up being it's it's not the one more video. We're not making big sweeping changes. It's literally I have a relationship with one person that comes from that racism or that environment or something like that and if that person can adjust because they have a relationship with me then that's really the change <laughs> yeah, you know that's, that's really like that's really part the of change, the change. Yeah, yeah yeah like you know you mentioned george floyd and i remember this uh black professor at stanford said this he said the problem was that all these white people came out and they participated in the demonstrations and then he went back to their all white neighborhoods and all mm -hmm. white schools mm -hmm. you know I, I the things that really significantly shift racial attitudes, you have to include human relationships. I mean, yeah. I talk about, there's a psychological uh, theory for that. I mean, it's not even a theory, it's been backed up by social science, that the way you change people, they have to have contact. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of what mixed race people can offer this country. Like, I couldn't, I was forced to have contact and relationships <laughs> with the white members of my family. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I had tremendous racial hostility. But through those relationships, that changed, changed. And I think if the country is going to change, we have to not, we can't forget that. You can't read your way out of racism. You're not right. going to shame white people out of racism. You're not going to argue them out of racism. Sooner or later, part of the toolkit has to be these interracial communities and these relationships. I think that's unavoidable. Or a bit of a combination, because I think just on the merit of having the relationship itself, things don't often change. Like, uh, you know, I can still detect the racism, you know, within my white relatives or, or um, my Japanese relatives, not towards what I'm necessarily mixed with all the way, but sometimes other groups or things like that. But I think mm -hmm. it's a combination of like, you need to, you can't just have the one good one that you're, right. you're going to make a change for, right? Like you, you, it does need to be a little bit more, but I think also there has to be some kind of education or something to back it up. Not entire, not, not devoting just to that or just having relationship, but it has to be, it has to be a lot of different things that kind of come into play to make those relationships grow because, you know, I've, I, I, well, that other thing is community. Yeah. Like if you're a part of a community that's, that challenges, that forces people to have those kind of relationships that challenges them, that really helps. Like you have a, you know, you talk about military, the military is the most integrated institution in the country. And one of the yeah. reasons is because these people, different races are forced to come together for a larger common purpose that goes beyond race. Mm -hmm. You know, the mission, you know, protect America, protect your, your fellow soldier. So I think, you know, it's not enough to have an isolated relationship with your white 
grandmother. Yeah. What helped me is I was also part of these interracial communities. It wasn't just that I met yeah. my white mom. I joined these interracial churches where I had to mm -hmm. really get to know white people. I was being in this community that existed for a larger purpose that went beyond race. You know, we yeah. had, so that's really key. And it's pushing through those uncomfortable moments because you talk about both on your side and the sides of the people that you are interacting with. You both have uncomfortable moments. It's the question of can can we move through this uncomfortable moment together and on the other side, you know, yeah, have well a said. Bit of yeah, yeah, you can't avoid uh, it. Yeah, those uncomfortable yeah, moments. Th those are those were some good moments in the book as well. Um, as we're coming to, a little bit to the end of this, and this will be very interesting to hear from you, given the given the uh, way that you identify too. Um, I like to end my show because a lot of times we talk about trauma and things like that within the mixed identity. To end on a positive note, what do you like most about being a mixed race person? For me, the thing I like the most about being a mixed race person is something that my mother taught me. And, and in a way, it, it doesn't have to do explicitly with being mixed race, but it has mm -hmm. to do with power. Okay. And what I mean by that is that when my parents met in the mid-60s, over 90% of Americans opposed interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. About two years ago, a Gallup poll revealed something like 94% of Americans approve of interracial marriage. And that cuts across political, racial, ethnic lines. Mm. And I asked myself, how did such a dramatic change take place in a lifetime? I mean, my father could have gotten killed for being sure, with my yeah. mom. So how did that happen? And one of the things that happened is because I read this writer I really like, and he said, norms change before policy changes. What he mm -hmm. meant is that when ordinary people start doing something in their life and other people join in, it creates this ripple effect that creates change. So my mom and dad were one, they were part of this vanguard of white, black, and brown people in the mid 60s who said, mm -hmm. we're going to get together. We're going to love who we're going to love, regardless of what the courts say and the politicians say. Mm -hmm. And when, when enough of them did that, these small little choices, these small little stands created this ripple effect and it created this way so that we created this new world. Mm -hmm. And so the world we live in now where people like you can have a podcast and talk openly and proudly about being mixed race, where people like Obama and Kamala Harris exist in the world, that was created by people like my mom and dad who seemed like they had no power on the surface. So for me, mixed race, is that's, the, that's one of the big lessons I take from it, that ordinary people who seem like they have no power has tremendous power when they act on their convictions. Mm -hmm. That's nice. I, I really, I really like that. I, I haven't viewed it through a power lens before. Yeah. So I'm going to sit on that one for a little while. Okay. <laughs> see, see how that, see how that changes me. Um, before we get out of here, why don't we tell people how they can find you and find the book? Yeah, it's pretty accessible. You can, Amazon bookstores. It's only been out about three months. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a website you can go to, you can order it. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty easy to get. And I like talking to people. People will read it and respond. And I try to respond to everyone. So. Oh, you do? You, that's... Yeah, I like I like talking to people. It's interesting. I mean, you write you write a story about race. Everyone sees it so differently. Like you mm -hmm. said something earlier about like you were reading it, and you're like, oh, it's just gonna be one of those stories. Like, a, yeah, you know, it's. If I got nervous. Yeah, I'm not. I'm what not kind of story would you worry it was gonna be? Where it's gonna be? Well, it's it's the. Um... I guess it's kind of like the Hollywood effect, I would call it, is just like one relationship and everybody has now changed and everybody's yeah. kumbaya and stuff like that. And yeah. um, I don't find that to be a very realistic thing. I'm not saying that it couldn't possibly happen in a 
person's life. But, um, you know, in my life, what I've witnessed is, is usually, yeah, it's about the one relationship, not about the broader relationship. So I couldn't, I was, there were moments that I would have that nervousness of like, as you're starting to show yourself shifting in your, in your arc, I was like, are you going to just be like, oh, white people are great now. You know, like, <laughs> it's okay to trust them. You know, like that nervous thing of just like pushing the, the all versus the, you know, still, we still need to be vigilant out here, but it still take a chance on those relationships, develop those relationships. In your case, you got to do that with your mother, your aunt, and um, people in integrated church, church environments and stuff like that, that kind of helped get you to that next that next step but yeah there was like little pockets it was like little moments it was like when they was it chicago i think was the the first not chicago what was the place uh there was someone you went away for a summer you did an internship or you worked somewhere and that was one of your first experiences with the Mm -hmm. interracial church or something there was that moment um and then there was one in the the atlanta story as well the atlanta chapter of your of yeah yeah i went to these interracial churches that really they kind of gave me the spiritual tools to really reconnect with my white family. And I'm aware of those stories. I think they call them magic Negro stories. Like if you just, it puts all the burden of forgiveness on black people. And yes. Just, yes. Yeah, yeah. We could just become friends. But if you notice throughout my story, I talk, I connected my story to systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, what I'm trying to say is that one of the ways you have to attack systemic racism, is not just through policy or laws or videos. We have to have these relationships to change people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's what, I mean, that's what really changed my family members. I, it wasn't any book I gave them or anything like that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, I, I definitely didn't write that story. That hasn't been my experience. Yeah. The magic Negro story. Yeah, no, it, it goes away. Like, it's just one of those setup thing, you know, like a story starting to set up and that's when you start to put in your own ideas yeah, about what's yeah. happening. And then it goes, I'm like, oh no. And then it goes, and then, you know, nope, it didn't actually go that way. And then yeah, kind of. That kind of thing happened. But thank you so much for joining me on Militantly Mixed. I really appreciate you sharing. Uh, for those of you who are listening and are watching, it is going to be, there's going to be links in the show notes so that you can find John's website or the book. And for everybody out there, be a mix ourselves. <laughs> thank you, Charmaine. <laughs>